Hello and welcome to Mammoth Training. I'm Casey Gresseth and um, kind of a different situation. This is a podcast that used to be called Smoke and Burn. I started it as kind of a ongoing series of conversations with uh, BG top salesmen and distributors and things like that. And uh, we ran for a while and now uh, friend of mine, Nick Willie, is going to be taking over the reins, and Mammoth Training is his company, and this is going to be his podcast now. So welcome, Nick, and thanks for having me. Hey, thanks, Casey. I appreciate it, man. Uh, super excited to be uh, hosting this podcast. Uh, we started this, you started this venture back, I believe, in 2018, wasn't it? I think so. Yeah, it's been a while. Yeah. And uh, did some great episodes. I think there were 18 episodes. And, uh, you know, a lot of, I know a lot of people around BG uh, and uh, even people that weren't in BG that were connected to BG folks like ourselves uh, really found a lot of value in the, uh, in the podcast. And so, uh, you know, you and I talked back in, man, I want to say it was 2020. I think and so. And started maybe 2021 and started talking about, you know, Hey Casey, I actually came up to you and said, Hey Casey, I noticed you haven't been doing any episodes lately. And you were like, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm kind of doing another project right now. And we talked about having somebody take it over. And, uh, I don't know how that conversation ended up, you know, coming to this conclusion, but it did. So it was pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm glad to see, you know, see it taking it to new places. So, it's going to be good. Yeah, right on. Well, today um, I'm going to inter interview you. Uh, no one's interviewed you throughout that entire time. And I thought, well, maybe Casey uh, could give us some stats and some some facts about his life and his career. So, um, so starting out, um, take me back uh, to your college. Uh, you were in a band, right? Yes. Um... <laughs> so I went to uh I went to a little tiny school all through grade school and uh it was a little bitty Christian school very conservative I was uh extremely sheltered and my first year of college I went to uh a small you know regular college in South Michigan called Hillsdale College uh, they get some national play with their they do some newsletters and things like that that are kind of big but um it was a real culture shock for me. And so I was like, man, I gotta, I gotta transfer back into my comfort zone. <laughs> and so I moved to Liberty university. And a big part of why I did that was I, I really wanted to be in a metal band. And, uh, I did, I found a oh, metal nice. band there and I did that for a number of years and it was my entire identity. And I think I was probably pretty annoying. <laughs> <laughs> so so question on the metal band, dude, um, who was your biggest influence as far as a, a mainstream band? Who were you guys trying to kind of go after or, or follow? This would have been in like 2005, which was kind of the heyday of like, uh, I guess like Christian metalcore, hardcore. And so the big bands at the time would have been like As I Lay Dying, Kill Switch Engage, August Burns Red. Um, you know, bands like that, there was, there was a bunch of them and, you know, that was kind of, a those were our idols at the time. Yeah, that's awesome. 
So the heavy, the really heavy stuff. Oh yeah, the I heavy was the with, the, with the with the heavy screaming vocals. Yeah, you were the were you the vocalist? Yep. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> I squawked. That is awesome. Now, did, the real question in this whole podcast is: Did you have a mullet? You know what? I, I had like the uh, emo kid Justin Bieber swoop. Oh, okay, but I have gotcha. really. That's awesome. I have, I have really curly hair, so I couldn't do it very well, right? My hair would just kind of like get bigger and bigger instead of doing that like flat iron <laughs> swoop. So I used to go right. and get it like chemically relaxed. Like, uh, Are you so- <laughs> oh, yeah. That's I just awesome, basically dude. like gave myself chemical burns, you know, every couple of months so that I could have this like dried haystack Lego hair swoop. <laughs> That's awesome, dude. So I, I got to tell you, you are the first man that I've ever talked to that has admitted to me they've got a chemical, what'd you call that? A, a chemical relaxation. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, I tried doing it myself awesome. several times and it, you know, you go to the drugstore and buy Dark and Lovely, which <laughs> is what right. the product was called. It, it's not for, uh, it's not for little emo white boys. <laughs> I don't think it's right, the original right. design, but I don't recommend it. It's not, uh, it's not good for your hair. <laughs> Dude, that's hilarious. It reminds me, I had a friend in high school and uh, he was my best friend at the time. He wanted to like bleach his hair blonde and he went to the store and uh, I forget what you call it, but it was supposed to bleach your hair blonde. It had ended up turning pumpkin orange. <laughs> oh man. Walking around. Yeah. He walked around school for a month or two with, Pumpkin orange hair. It was, ugh. Everybody was trying something out at that, at that age. Yeah. Well, we all had our issues at that time, right? We still do, I guess. <laughs> but, um, so were you in, were you involved in the audio video stuff besides the band? Were you interested back then in, you know, the audio, the video? Did you do like home videos of people, stuff like that? I know a lot of people that get into this really did that as a kid, you know, they really enjoyed it. I really didn't. Um, I just became like a big podcast fan when I was driving, you know, a thousand miles a week in my BG van. Um, I was putting on a lot of miles up there in like mid Michigan and I did talk radio for a long time, listened to a ton of that. And, uh, you know, you just get sick of commercials and stuff. And I found podcasting. It was like the greatest thing that ever happened to my commute. And so uh, I started a podcast with some buddies of mine that was just kind of like a fun comedy show. And we did that for a number of years. But that was that was the first time I'd actually done any like recording or anything. Um, it was pretty rudimentary and crude the way that we produced that one. Uh, when I moved to Kansas and I decided to do to start Smoke and Burn, I did a little more research. Some better tools had come along since then, and uh, I was able to clean it up and do a little better job with it. Right on. Yeah, I mean, it was it was awesome. Um, and you're really into bikes. Your family's kind of got a history of motocross, right? Were you ever involved in that? I did when I was real young. Um, when I was still a you know a kid in Georgia, we would go to the track and stuff on the weekend. And I had a, we always had four wheelers and then I had a dirt bike for a while. Um, 
after college, I met some guys up in Michigan that were really into building like custom bikes, cafe racers and bobbers and things. So I, I got into that with those guys and um, built quite a few. And over the past like couple of years here, I've kind of shifted out of it a little bit. But uh, now I've got an old Jeep that I've been working on. So, oh, right on. Always some sort of, always 30 projects and only about two of them that I'm actively working on. <laughs> right. The other ones sit around the house or in the garage and with a tarp over it. Yeah. yeah. I just, I used to I just those hoard projects. junk. <laughs> That's awesome. So, well, you know, some of that stuff might be worth a lot of money someday, you, you know. That's what every hoarder tells themselves. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> when I was working on my... My 79 Trans Am in Clovis, California, and I had the body up on a, on a rotisserie and I was cutting out the floors and my wife would come out and be like, what, what are we doing here? And I'm like, honey, this could be worth a lot of money someday. And then I ended up getting bored of it like two years later, sold it for 900 bucks. So <laughs> well, I've been not the best in types of projects, <laughs> yeah, not the best investment, but you know, when you're young. So what's the coolest bike you've ever built? What's your favorite? Oh, man. Um, so there's been a couple of the, So there was one, the last one that I really worked on a whole lot was a, it was an 81 uh, Yamaha Virago 920. And it's a really cool like platform to, for a cafe bike build. It's kind of big and heavy, yeah. so it's not typically what you would think of. But what's cool about them is they had a factory monoshock. So like oh, you could... You could do a little work on the, you know, on the subframe on the back end and all of that area over the wheel is open. So they look really cool. Uh, it didn't really ever come to completion. Um, <laughs> I, I didn't, you know, I would, uh, I would buy parts and throw them at bikes. I was never really very yeah. good at like diagnosing them and stuff. Uh, this one in particular. So I switched it to a lithium ion battery because it saves so much space and you can tuck it in at any angle and stuff. What I didn't do was look to see what the output was on the regulator rectifier. And mm. so I get this bike right. all done. I'm taking it for the first ride. My wife, April's following me in her car. And I make it about five miles down the road. And all of a sudden, like I see smoke coming up from underneath. Uh -oh. Uh -oh. So I pull That's never over. A good sign. Oh man. I let the smoke out hard. It, it literally just uh -oh. melted the, the, this lithium ion battery, like the case cracked open and it just melted. Oh, I mean, it was sputtering and popping, shooting stuff out. I thought I was just going to watch the bike burn down on the side of the road my first time out, but it eventually calmed down. Oh. I, I'm sure that's not smoke you want to breathe, but I did a right. little bit. No, probably not. <laughs> no, they say uh, lithium smoke is bad. Definitely. <laughs> so Tesla fires. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. They, you know, when the Teslas catch on fire, the fire department's like, get away from it. Don't breathe it. Don't try to put it out. It, it, apparently, they can't put those things out when they just get engulfed. That's what I've heard. You just can't cool it down enough by the sounds of it. That's amazing. Same. Um, so a lot of folks uh, in, in the world around us, right? We're salespeople. 
by na- by by trade, right, and by profession. And um, a lot of folks think, well, everybody in, that's good at sales has to be a complete extrovert. So I wanted to ask you: Are you? Would you consider yourself naturally introverted or naturally extroverted? Boy, I think I'm. I don't know. I I would have said years ago. I would have said that I'm extroverted through and through. Um, my wife is definitely an introvert, and I feel like I've drifted more in her direction over time. Whereas, uh, mm-hmm. you know, I I like being around people. Uh, I like being around the people that I enjoy being around and I need (laughs) to interact and spend time with people. But the older I get, I feel like the more I, uh, I eventually need to charge my batteries up and just be, you know, home with her, no other people around. So I don't know. It's kind of a mix. Now, do you think people, have you seen salespeople in the past that were more introverted, be able to train enough to become great salespeople? Yeah, absolutely. I think everybody's kind of got, you know, a different mix on that spectrum. And, um, you know, I think when it comes down to it, you, you have to be willing, whether you're introverted or extroverted, like the biggest thing is just like, you need to understand the value of investing in people. And Mm -hmm. I find that like introverted people, there's a couple of problems that, that I think they, they run into when they're in the sales world, uh, one of which is that, you know, sales is all about, and probably business in general is all about just like, you, you gotta be willing to do the thing that you don't want to do. And that's mm-hmm. almost exclusively the difference between somebody who does well at this and someone who eventually is going to have to find a new job is just like, you have to continually <laughs> right. like push yourself to do the thing that you're not comfortable doing. And for, I would imagine for people who are really introverted, that might mean, you know, going and introducing yourself to guys that you don't know, you know, really spending time with the people in the, you know, in our world, it's in the shop, technicians, advisors. Uh, If you avoid those conversations and you can't, you know, make yourself go invest in people, then I just don't see how you can do this job very well. I think that goes for sales in general. I think the second part of it is just that uh, it takes more than just like business conversation. I guess that's, I mean, investing in people means more than just like talking about the thing that benefits you. And Mm -hmm. I find that, you know, I've, I've had some of my guys that struggled with that where they're like, you know, I'm here to make money. I'm here to do a job. I'm here to talk about BG. And they really just don't have a lot of tolerance for anything that drifts out of that. And like, my my advice always to new salesmen, especially in our world where there's so much to learn about the industry, the product line, how the business works. My advice is always like, just go make friends. Just go buddy up with everybody that you can. Spend time talking to them, get to know them, get to know what they like, their kids, their, you know, their family situation, where they came from. That's that's I'm probably the best time that you can spend as a new rep that doesn't really know what you're doing yet is just go make friends with everybody in the shop. Yeah. And, and, you know, you, you kind of hit the nail on the head when you said that introverted people, introverted people might have a harder time doing that. And I think you and I both learned over the years, it's all about going out of your comfort zone. And that's the whole thing is, is so many people, 
or in their comfort zone and you can't grow in there. You got to get out of your comfort zone. Right. And, um, but yeah, you're, you're, I mean, I agree hundred percent. You got to do things you don't want to do. Every great business person, great leader, great salesperson has had to do things they don't want to do. You know, uh, I was telling my wife yesterday, I, I got up yesterday morning at five o'clock and sat around arguing with myself about going to the gym because I didn't want to go. <laughs> and I literally, literally go, finally, I'm like, no, dude, you're going to the gym. And I went to the gym. But a lot of people, I think what you're saying is a lot of people have a hard time forcing themselves to do those type of things. If they don't feel like they want to do it, they, they don't want to do it. Yeah. Well, and, and in the BG world, you know, it's everybody has a different thing that, that they hate doing, you know, I mean, they, ask a bunch of BG salesmen and most of them are going to be like, oh, I don't hate cold calling. I like cold calling. It's like, okay, but do you really, do you really enjoy cold calling or are you just saying that? Like we all enjoy cold calling when it's fun and we do well at it, but it's demoralizing a lot of times. And, yeah. uh, you know, you stuff like that. I mean, I think, one of the things that I hear a lot of guys say when they're starting out is like, okay, I'm going to hit all my accounts on Monday through Wednesday. And then that leaves me Thursday and Friday to just go out and cold call. And some people yeah. are resilient enough to do that. Most people right. are not. Most people need to right. mix those tough conversations and, and uh, you know, long shots in with, you know, the, the, the people that they're familiar with, you know, you need to recharge and, mm -hmm. I find that most people can't keep up that kind of a schedule where they're just, you know, it's two days of just pounding the pavement, being told no, or that somebody's busy or that they can't see you right now, or they're happy doing what they're already doing. <laughs> yeah. Mix them in yeah. with everything else. Yeah. That's a, that's a good point. Uh, especially for people that do have trouble, right. Forcing themselves to do that difficult task, what they see as a difficult task for two days, three days straight. Um, if you find yourself just not forcing yourself to do it, just mix it in. You know, that's a great tip. So yeah. when you, when you started with BG, what's the biggest surprise? What What's the biggest thing in this business that you didn't expect? Boy. Um, hmm. I think that th one of the things that still surprises me is just how resistant people are to something that to you makes total sense. You know, yeah, there's, yeah. there's lots of different reasons to turn somebody down, but sometimes like, I, I mean, I would argue that like uh, a, a good BG rep going into a car dealership, that's not really doing much with maintenance products. Like, you know, we come in, speaking like our language and talking about our agenda. But, you know, I think I 100% believe that our agenda is probably the best thing that could happen to them, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, I don't know. I'm always just shocked at how resistant people are to things that like you can make an argument on paper for, you know, that w what we're talking about is, is 100% beneficial to them. And they're still like, you know, whether it's ego or whether it's, you know, past experience or just, you know, resilience and resistance to change that 
that they'll push back on that. Yeah. The other thing that I would say is that I'm always surprised at how many parts managers seem to be bad at math. <laughs> it seems like it's kind of their whole job. Um, right, but, you right, know, going yeah. in and talking about like, a, oh, oh my God, I, I vent about this all the time. But like, you'll you'll have a conversation with a parts manager and he's really angry that you're spiffing the advisors or the technicians. And you're like, look, man. Mm-hmm. This is this is nothing but good for you. I mean, like, you know, let's say it's five dollars on a thirty dollar kit. You know, you and I talked when we set this up. You want a forty percent gross out of whatever we sell, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's true. Yeah. I said forty percent gross on thirty five dollars is better. It's more than forty percent gross on thirty dollars. And he's like, but it's just more expensive. And I'm like. I know, I know. Yeah, That's what know. I'm saying, and you're you're winning. You win most of all the people in the store. You win the most off of the Spiff program. Yeah, <laughs> yep, I know. It's it's hilarious. I've had the same exact conversation so many times, and uh, you're right. You have, you almost have to write it out for them. You know, see, here's 35 times 0.4. Here's 30 times 0.4. Like, oh wow, I didn't realize that. But that's, that's a good point, though. It's people don't do the math. And I think that's what, as a, as a BG sales rep, what surprised me the most is people didn't do their own math to see what the potential was in their own company, in, in their own department. So what's the biggest challenge you face now uh, as a, sale, a general sales manager? Um, I guess it would be... Well, finding the right people is always is always a challenge. Um, I feel like we've done a pretty good job of our of putting together our team. I really like everybody that's on our team now. We've had to, you know, we inherited a team when we when BG bought Kansas BG, our distributorship, and uh, you know, over time, some of those people, you know, some of those people left. Some of them were, you know, let go. Um, we've hired and let go a couple of people that just, I don't know, uh, Steve Tingle, my buddy up in uh, Minnesota, he's got this saying that I always think of when you're talking about hiring. He said, you can always tell how good they're going to be. You can never really tell just how bad they're going to be. <laughs> <laughs> that's a good point. But uh, that's a good point. I think it's that. And then it's. I think. I feel like a lot of times sales managers, distributors, you know, salespeople are, are, are challenging at times. They're big personalities. Um, and, and they're there doing well at sales because, you know, they, they're looking out for their self-interest. They're, they're going out and making it happen for them and for their family every day. And sometimes mm-hmm. like pushing those guys to change and to adapt to, to, you know, to see the forest through the trees a little bit on like, Hey, look, you know, you've got, you've got 200 accounts, man. Like this is, you really just cannot even begin to take care of most of these people and grow them and stuff. Like we gotta, you know, we, we really need to like trim this down, bring someone in and take some of this off your plate. That's a tough conversation for anybody who's on commission to have. And, uh, and I've been that guy myself, you know, but, um, I think that's that's 
a lot of times the biggest challenge is, is you have to be able to sell the change to your people and you have to make mm-hmm. sure that you're not so interested in your, in the change that you want to push that you aren't hearing their concerns and, and, you know, being responsive to, to the way that they feel, which is, you know, it's a lot of times it's valid. Right. Right. Yeah. There's, you know, I, I think there's a validity to everyone's point of view, right? Because everybody sees things a little bit different, uh, differently. So, um, I was going to ask about hiring. Is there are there any tools that you guys are employing to to try to narrow the the candidate pool down to make sure you have the right people before you hire them? So we we use the predictive index on all of our uh, applicants, and that traditionally, I mean, I wouldn't say it's the gospel, but it's it's been very accurate in a lot of cases. It? You know. Wow. Um, that's good. It it is a good point. It is a good way to get a feel for people's strengths, their weaknesses. You know what things are going to be a problem for them, and you know it's sometimes it's it's uncomfortable when you have to have those conversations with somebody that you know, I mean, great dude and really wants the job, but you know his PI comes back and it just doesn't look great. Uh, I always try to tell. Like, them, oh, I've like, been down this road. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, and it's you always try to tell them like, "Hey, look, dude, this is not this is not a, an assessment of your value as a human being or your intelligence or your skill level or anything like that. This is just yeah. like a this is like a sales aptitude test. You know, this isn't saying nope. that you can't do the job. What it is telling me is that you're probably going to hate it. You know? And like yeah. how long can yeah. you do something that you hate even if Money's great and all that stuff. Um, that's been a pretty powerful tool for us. I find myself being, you know, I'm typically the voice in the room that's arguing with it, I think. And I'm usually wrong. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, well, somebody, whoever put that together has been doing this a lot longer, right? Yeah. There are, they're or, or hard the to read too. Sometimes yeah. you you read them over and you're like, I don't really see where the problem is. Well, hey, you know, his his graph is not quite right on this. You know, you typically want this to be at a higher value and this to be at a lower value and stuff. And I'm like, mm-hmm. but I like him and he seems cool. <laughs> yeah. It's my I'm going on on my gut, but uh, it's been it's a good way to reality check myself for sure. You know, mm-hmm. What's the, uh, if there were one kind of category on that PI that if you see that, you know, either this person's going to be a great salesperson or this person is, is going to be horrendous. What, what would be that one category in your mind? I think drive is, is by far. And I, I don't remember if I, I can't remember the word that they use for it on the PI, but really like drive, drive and ambition. Yeah, where where somebody's gonna fall? Because you can be, you know, you can you can be the type of person that's just not naturally inclined to a sales role. You can be somewhat introverted and stuff like that. If you have the drive, drive over drive overrules a lot of other factors. You know, it's not the only thing, but it is one of those things where, like, 
I wouldn't say that it's a it's a passing grade on anybody, but when you see someone whose drive is lacking, that's that's usually a good warning sign that like this this probably isn't a great person for this for a sales role, you know. Sometimes those guys are great in a support role, you know, to be like a, mm-hmm. a sales assistant, a B rep, whatever you you want to call them. Um, but to be the one really like steering the ship and pushing for new things all the time. I mean, you got to have that. If you don't have the fire in you for that sort of thing, then like it's, it's just going to be a struggle all the time. Yeah. You know, PG sales and route sales in general is so much different than, especially with BG, right? It's so much different than any other type of role. And I think a lot of folks don't realize that like, you're you're a consultant. You're a psychologist. You're a, a, a you know um, a conversationalist, a closer. You know you, you're you're everything out there, and a product delivery person, right? So I I know a lot of folks like myself had um, I had a, a CSR customer service rep to deliver the product, but that's one small aspect, right? But I, I agree with you though the the CSR doesn't necessarily need to be that guy that that can be a managed person. Right. But that sales rep has to be self-managed. A hundred percent. Yeah. There's just no way around that. Yeah. You know, we, we did one called um, outmatch. And the one thing that I found that seemed to really kill it for people is we, there was a category on there called mobility, you know, and the mobility category is simply, do you feel like driving around all day, every day? And I didn't realize when we first started using it, if that's low, oh, it didn't seem to work. Yeah, it's just not the position for you. I've run into that too yeah. with with people where like they just are, they hate the windshield time. They hate, you know, drifting from place to place. I think if you're, if you're the type of person that's going to be, good at, at being a sales rep, you know, not having a set schedule, not having a daily routine is part of the appeal of the job. Um, for Mm -hmm. somebody who, who craves that routine and, and consistency and just bedrock sort of, um, blueprint for how their day and week should go, it's, it's going to be tough. You need a little of both. I mean, cause you also, you know, I mean, I was as a rep, I was the type of person that I did way too much by the seat of the pants. And a lot of times it would bite me, you know, I mean, didn't get yeah. to this night cause I was doing training over here and I figured oh, I'll, I'll get to him later in the week. And then he calls out a product and now you look like an idiot because you didn't show up on the normal day. And yeah. I don't know. So I, I, I fall into the other camp a little too far, but uh, you definitely got to be willing to roll with the punches. Yeah, no doubt. I mean, and how many times have you been at a, a demo or a presentation that was, you know, you slated an hour for it and it was, you, you weren't leaving till three hours later, right? Because yeah, something happened the in the demo or whatever. Yeah. Um, so, you know, your, your dad being the CEO, your dad was a sales rep for B or for Ken's and Leslie when he was just coming in, right? Yep. Was, was that a big influence on you wanting to be a BG salesperson? You know, when I graduated college, all I knew was that I didn't want to be a BG salesman. 
That was like all really? I had in my head wow. was just, <laughs> I don't want to be a BG salesman. And then, uh, but you know, I think that that was maybe, maybe that was part of the reason why it was because, you know, I, I knew my, my dad and my grandpa and my uncle were so good at it. And I saw what it takes to do that. And I might've been a little hesitant to do it. I, I, I also think I didn't realize how green the grass was over there and uh, mm-hmm. getting mm-hmm. out and doing some interviews. I, I graduated in 2009. So it was like, you know, the best time historically to go find a job and going out and doing some interviews and stuff. I realized like, okay, uh, you know, I, I, I had a, I had like five interviews with enterprise about being like mm-hmm. a management trainee or whatever garbage they, uh, they call it. And yeah. it was like, well, look, you got to wear a suit every day. You're going to work 50 to 55 hours a week in between customers. You have to go out and detail the cars in your suit. You got to wash them, pressure, wash them, clean out the interiors and stuff. And, you know, with bonuses and everything like that, you know, if you, if you do well and you hit your numbers and stuff, then, you know, your first year you can expect to make just under 33,000. And I was like, Is, what? <laughs> I don't think so. So you're like per month, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> that was, that was a tough pill to swallow, uh, you know, as yeah. a young guy. And, and then, you know, you, you get a, I think I needed a taste of the real world to realize like how good of a gig BG is. And, and BG has been very good to my family over the years, you know, there's, all of us yeah. have done it. So and done well. Done really well at it too. Um what's one thing about the field um a, a piece of your expertise, right, where you consider yourself an expert in this field that no one agrees with you. Oh boy. <laughs> Man, that's a tough question. Um, I think I've, I've really changed the way that I look at training with advisors over the past couple of years. And I sense some resistance from, from people when I talk about it a lot of times, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, if you, if you've gone out and ridden with a lot of BG reps and you've done training with them and stuff, especially some of the veterans, like, you know, I've gone out with reps and they've been like, today we're training on MOA. And yeah. we spend an hour on MOA going through, like, I, I was with one guy and he had this PowerPoint. I don't know where he got it, but he went through every little thing that's a part of the additive package in MOA and like what it does. And and I mean, just this just minute detail about what the product is. And I, I think that it's, it's good to you got to instill like the, the the goal of training right there's a couple of different goals when it comes to training advisors and and techs but one of those things is that you want to build trust with them in the product and in the company right mm-hmm. they need to come out of that training feeling a little different about bg and about the product that you guys focused on when it's all said and done um, yeah you also want to give them confidence in the fact that they know what the product is actually doing for the customer. And I think sometimes mm-hmm. in our, in our 
quest to do that. We as at BG guys, we get way too far into the technical weeds on on what these services do and why they're important and stuff. And it's a balancing act, right? But you know, I've kind of come to the conclusion over the past few years that like we 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 need to keep this dirt simple with advisors. We think when we yeah. go into all these technical details that we are building credibility in their minds. And in a lot of t- in a lot of cases, I think we're just putting them to sleep. I mean, I really don't think most of yeah. them care that much about the level of technicality that we're going into on these different things. And, you know, I've I like demos because demos are a simple visual cue as to what the product does. It puts into it it gives them a visualization of what of all the like complicated things that you're telling them. It gives them an instant visualization of what you're saying in the simplest right. of terms. You can't get any more simple on like a an ATC demo, like the fluid was black and now it's red. Yeah, now, yeah. I've, I've had a lot of guys that are like, well, I don't really like doing that demo because, you know, what is it doing and why is it turning red? And, you know, what's the chemical breakdown? I'm like, you're missing the point, man. You're just trying to show yeah, them that yeah. like, this is just, it's, it's a, it, you're instilling a good additive package into the fuel, into the fluid, the, the leftover right. fluid that you can't get out of the transmission. You're giving it a boost and making sure that it's going to protect the transmission, right? Mm-hmm. I want to hit those types of things. And I want to, I want them to leave with a word track on it that is 15 to 20 seconds. And honestly, the more that the word tracks can mirror each other, the better, because then they're easy Uh to remember, you know? So, I mean, in the case of, you know, whatever service, hey, Mr. Customer, you know, coolant over time, it just breaks down and it doesn't protect the engine the way that it's supposed to. Occasionally, we need to go in there and clean out all that old coolant and all the stuff that it's left behind just put new high quality coolant in there that's going to protect the vehicle. Uh, it's going to extend the life of the cooling system and it comes with a lifetime guarantee. Uh, do you want to, do you want to get that done? Yeah. You know, how any variation yeah. of that, but just like the fluid goes bad. We need to clean up the system and put new fluid in there because it's going to save your transmissions life down the road. Yeah. Well, and to your point about, about simple, right? What's the biggest concern or the biggest fake um, concern that the advisors give us on the service drive. I don't have time, right? Well, if you know, so if they believe that, why not give them a simple, quick word track to make them more effective in a shorter amount of time? Is that kind of what you're saying? Exactly. Yeah. Just keep it as simple as possible because it needs to be. There's a there's a level of proficiency that they're going to have with whatever information we give them, and then you can cut that down to a quarter of a percent. And that's the level of proficiency that most of their customers are going to have with that information. The fluid was, yeah. it goes bad. We need to replace it with new good fluid, you know, to save yeah. your component's life. I think the same thing goes for like process. Um, you know, I, I, one of my, one of my buddies, Caleb Williams, up in up in Michigan. You know, we've been talking back and forth a lot about digital menus because it's something I've drugged my feet on, and now all of a sudden, like we're up to our eyeballs and menu rollouts. And yeah. uh, you know, he's he's made a couple of points that really like kind of shook me out of my uh, my resistance to some of it. One of which being that like 
the, the, the pushback that you get with any process driven item on the drive is that like, we have 30 different things to do and we can't fit another thing in here. Like you're just making this more complicated. I don't have time for another step. Right. Well, you know, the point that he made was that like a digital menu, you know, a menu presentation is consolidating all the things that you need to talk to that customer about while they're standing in front of you. You're consolidating that down into one service. That's yep. that's one pitch that that makes that that pitch for them. This is only an extra step if you are selling absolutely nothing at write up. Is that the case? <laughs> exactly. And it, but a lot of times it is, right? But that's especially when yeah. you're talking to managers, that's the pushback they give you and say, look, man, I hear what you're saying. This is only an extra step. It's only extra time spent. If your guys are selling nothing at write up right now, is that what they're doing? And, they're, oh, oh. and if the answer is yes, that's what we're here to talk about, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah. We're only having this meeting because you're selling nothing at write up. I mean, we need this extra step. Yeah, that's awesome. And um, as far as smart BMA. How much, what percentage of your dealers do you think are on smart VMA right now? Oh boy. Um, it's not a huge percentage, but in the past like year, we've gone from having, I think three or four smart VMA accounts to now, I, I think we're somewhere in the neighborhood of 20 or 25. Um, nice. It's been it's been a harrowing experience. We definitely don't have it figured out yet. I'll say that, but uh, we've got some we've got some stores making progress. So that's that's part's been good. And what do you have any that have have actually increased results yet, or are you still pretty you know so new in the process that you haven't seen that quite yet? We have several that are doing really well with it, um, but they're not the majority. That's for sure. Um, yeah, kind of that 80, 20, 20, 80 rule or 80, 20 rule. Exactly. Yeah. You know, which can be a little like discouraging at times, but then, you know, you just think about all the times that you spent a month building paper menus for a store only to see their sales stay stagnant. And, you know, you walk in and they're all sitting under, I mean, it's the same trope that we've all heard a million times, but uh, I've found that with smart VMA, I mean, you you got to set expectations up front because some stores mm -hmm. in their current at their current level are just not a good fit for it. You know, uh, yeah, so you I almost have more. to kind of do a, an assessment of like how much are you fighting the current in here with this process. I mean, um, it's also a matter of like what what do they do consistently now? Like, give me a couple of things that your advisors do consistently on every car. Uh, as a yeah. part of your process as a dealer. And if the answer is nothing, uh, is VMA going to be the first one? You know, that's, yeah. that's going to be tough. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it's a lot of it is picking the right accounts for it, I think. And the more you, I think the it's like anything else where like the more accounts that you have that are being successful with it, the, the higher the, prof the, the uh, propensity others are to doing well with it, you know? Mm -hmm. So we're well, especially there. when you get that word of mouth, you get that word of mouth going, you know, Hey, call Bob over at the Ford dealer because they went from blank to blank and they're crushing it. 
right? Once you get some accounts, you know, having some success, you can, you can get that referral hopefully and get people motivated. I know like the, the longstanding rule with BG is like, Hey, you don't share people, people's numbers with other stores, you know, mm-hmm. which is, it's a good rule. That's a good rule to honor. I I've told my guys since this process started that like, Hey, we are not, that is not how we're going to approach menus. When someone's doing well with it, everyone's going to hear about it. <laughs> you know? Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, you, you have to, you know, you brought it up earlier. People's beliefs are, are they're, they're set in their beliefs, right? Whether they're uh, an introvert or an extrovert or they have certain beliefs and these managers have beliefs as well, right? And if you don't, if you don't have a peer that one of their peers to talk about to break that mold, you know, some people just will keep doing the same old thing. But I think you touched on something really important which is process. You know, if they don't have a process, is a is a menu going to create a process for them? No. It's a tool, right? not a process. Yeah. You got to create the process around the tool, I think is what you were saying. Yeah. In a way. You know, and with anything, it's kind of the same way. But, uh, you know, you, you start up a new store, like a guy goes into a store, especially like let's – you know, you use the example of like, a. we have a lot of country. I mean, we're in Kansas. We have a lot of country dealers, you know, and most yeah. of these country dealers are not really actively selling anything. Um, so somebody, one of the managers goes to a meeting with the owner. He's been to a 20 group. He's like, we should be at, you know, this much, you know, this percentage of service absorption and, and our ELR should be this, and we should be selling these maintenance services like crazy. And all of a sudden you get a call from this guy out in the, you know, Bumbley bird that wants to do everything. We want it all bring, bring every machine, bring it all in. We want to get started with everything. We're, you know, we want everything. I, sometimes that's how it goes, especially if you're replacing Uh a competitor program, but I definitely think that you're better off like getting them started with a couple of things that you feel they have the best possibility of doing well with, you know, Uh and um, if you can just get them to do one or two things, well, the rest of it is going to come really easy. If you put in Uh eight different items that they now have to sort through and somehow sell, and they haven't done any of this, these are all brand new conversations with their customers chances are they're probably going to struggle hard with it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it, it, especially if they're not used to selling anything, like you mentioned, the, the, you know, the dealership that sells nothing but oil services, like to bring an entire program in that dealer, they're going to be in shock. Right. Yeah. So, so I, I think with process, it's the same way, you know, if currently they don't have any consistent processes, you know, maybe your first step is not bringing in digital menus. Maybe your first step is like identifying one area that you've got buy-in from the manager and some from the advisors and just trying to do something like that really well once, you know, sometimes that's putting a can of fuel additive on their desk with a little flyer and, and just having conversations with customers about that, you know, that, that gives you something to build off of. Definitely. What's one of the easiest processes like if you could if you go into a dealer and say hey they have no processes right 
I want to start this process. What process would you normally start with? Um, I think the the bedrock of a lot of stores that are not actively selling a ton of maintenance is is bound to be their their multi point inspection, mm, and yeah. that's you know especially going into like a, a dealer out in the country or a, an independent shop in the country that's been our our best area of success with those guys is to just look at their multi-point process and figure out you know like well where who is doing these and when because everybody's always doing a multi-point right if you ask them about it but then when it comes down to it you find out that like well there's a bunch of there's a whole group of dealers that uh, i've worked a bunch with over the past year that you know they're like well um our quick lube guys, they do multi-points on, they do multi-points on most cars. They're pretty good about it. But, uh, you know, our mainline techs, they're, they're not getting paid to do it. And, you know, they're so busy, like they don't really do any, any multi-points on those vehicles. It's like, okay, well, look, (laughs) you guys are telling me that you want to, you want to increase your, your hours and dollars per RO, you know, and like, I'm looking at history on these vehicles you just have vehicle after vehicle coming in for either, you know, they're either a free oil change or they're getting Mm. some sort of repair or diagnosis work done. And we're not doing anything with these people. You know, we're not looking at their car. We're not judging fluids, tires, suspension, anything like let's start by seeing if we can get some multi-point action going on there. And the lowest hanging fruit for like BG is always going to be like related services. You know, mm-hmm. the most common sense stuff is going to be like, hey, we're doing a water pump. Let's do a coolant service along with it. Quoted as part of the job, pitch it all as one service to fix the vehicle. That's yeah. the lowest hanging fruit, in my opinion. And uh, it's a shocking number of stores that really don't do that, you know, until they realize how easy it is. Yeah, you know, it was always amazing. The, the management seat, right? The service manager seat in these dealerships is like a, like there's an exit sign over it, right? So, you know, the next person leaving the dealer is the guy who got promoted to the service manager, but it's such an easy fix. And I agree, you know, if they would just hold techs accountable to do a multi-point inspection, that their, their numbers would shoot up almost overnight. And sometimes the easiest way to get them to buy into that idea is to look at some of the things that, you know, like non-BG items that they are supposed to be selling that they're not, you know. And for our stores out in the country, I mean, they all do a lot of diesel work, you know, provided they have a technician for it. But, um, you know, you start asking questions like, how often does Ford recommend changing a diesel fuel filter? Oh, well, uh, you know, every 15,000 miles. Okay. Can you pull numbers for me? Like how many of those did you sell last month? Two? (laughs) Okay. We got got a problem there. We need to make sure that we're getting these recommended on a regular basis. And it's almost all of these trucks are going to your mainline techs. So you see why we need to do multi-points on these vehicles. And, you know, from a BG perspective, like sometimes the easiest way to gain some sales in some of your store, you know, new stores, underperforming stores, even your veteran stores is to look at some of those items as well and say like, mm. you know, these guys struggle with anything fuel related, or maybe they don't do much maintenance at all. But, you know, looking at numbers, they sell a heck of a lot of diesel fuel filters. 
So, okay. Well, yeah. Why don't we pair something with that? Let's have a diesel fuel filter mm. service where we do a fuel additive along with it. I mean, sometimes that's the easiest, like least pushback way to, uh, to, to get some sales moving in one of those places. Yeah. Well, like you said, you know, so much of the factory maintenance isn't being done. And, it, you know, they say that, um, I think it was NADA that said 70% of the clients would have bought the maintenance if they were asked, right? The number one reason they don't buy the maintenance is because they are not asked. And that's kind of the number one rule in sales, right? Ask for the sale. So, yeah. But what do you think causes uh, these you know, lack, the lack of processes, right, in these stores, what do you think is kind of the base cause? I think the root of all, I, you know, I think the, the, you can trace almost any problem that a dealer's having back to just the general chaos on the drive, you know, and, and I think that that's most of the time why, you know, you'll talk to, you talk to any big, big BG guys and ask them like why their stores aren't doing better and what needs to change in order for them to do better. And almost all of them are going to be like, well, there's no accountability. And most of the yeah. time that's not because the guy doesn't believe in accountability or think that these things are important and need to be done on a regular basis. It's that he's constantly lost in the chaos on the drive. Sometimes mm -hmm. that's because of the lack of processes. Sometimes that's because, you know, his technicians run the shop. And so he's constantly putting out fires in the shop and pushing work to different guys. Um, sometimes he's got advisors that like literally will not take responsibility for customer interactions. And so the minute anybody pushes back at all on anything, they just pass them off to him. And, and then you've got yeah. a heck of a lot of managers that just like, they don't really know exactly what their day-to-day -day should look like and they're not sure what they should be doing. So they revert back to being a service advisor or back to being a technician. And this guy who's really supposed to be the one steering the ship and making sure that, you know, every car is getting a walk around and that we're greeting people at the door and, and this and that, you know, this guy's, he's running people to the mall to drop them off while their oil change is getting done. Or he's off on a test drive with some technician that, you know, I mean, they find other things to occupy their time. And that's typically why the things that you care about aren't getting done. Yeah. Well, and it's not just the BG person who cares, right? The general manager is, is on the service managers back going, Hey, we need to get this number up. We need to get that number up. Um, but I agree. I mean, they're, they're just, they create other work instead of holding those folks accountable to do their work. Right. The Diag, you know, technician that sh should be test driving or whatever it is. Uh, but it, when you're a doer, I, and I think this happens to managers in every company, managers that are really good at doing and get, and get promoted to management, it's really difficult to not get involved in the work. Right. Would you agree with that? Yeah. And I think that the same rule applies on like making yourself do the things that you don't want to do. You know, sometimes, uh, you can always find something that you can make a case for being valuable and that you need to do it. Right. 
somebody's got to clean up the equipment that's been brought back to the warehouse and replace fittings and fix stuff and all that, you know, somebody has to do that is that's not always the best use of my time or Sean's time or whatever, you know, but you Uh know, there's days where you're just like, man, I don't want to go get in a van and, you know, I don't want to go out in front of customers or just stand in the back at this demo that one of the guys is doing, uh, I do have a bunch of machines that need cleaned up and it's, it's the same (laughs) thing that plays out everywhere. You know, I mean, um, a lot of managers would change their business immediately in a dealership if they just spent time on the drive, but it's the easiest thing in the world for them to talk themselves out of doing. And, uh, and that's where they find all those little, you know, rabbit trails to chase. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's true. And, you know, I think a lot of the managers, they're not, especially in dealerships, a lot of the managers came up from being a technician. And technicians aren't by nature, or they don't think they are a lot of times people persons, right? They're never around the, the, the customer, they're back in their stall, they're, you know, working on the cars, they're trying to fix problems. That's their niche. That's why they're doing that. That's why they're technicians. And so uh, I think when the managers get put in that, you know, on that service drive, and now they have to communicate with retail clients, quite frankly, I mean, they're just not trained to communicate with them. Would you agree with that? Yeah, a hundred percent. And it's the rare guy that, that, you know, is he wants control over his paycheck enough to go up and do those things for himself. You know, yeah. but man, when you find those guys, they are gold. Yeah. Yeah. They're rock stars. They're rock yeah. stars for it's, sure. It's a struggle. So it's a, it's difficult. It is, but you obviously enjoy it. You've been doing it for a long time. Yeah. Uh, quite. Uh, I'm coming up on, 15 years next year. Wow. Well, if you were, if you could start any other business tomorrow, say, say this all went away and you know, not that that's going to happen, but just say it did hypothetically, what business would you start tomorrow? If it weren't this one? Oh man, boy, if the sky was the limit, oh man, I think, Probably uh, some sort of a like ranching or something like that. It's easy nice. for me to say that because I know so little about it. But you know, you, <laughs> I watched uh, I watched some Clint Eastwood movies this week, and I'm like, oh, that's, oh nice. that's totally me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's funny. We have that in common. Then you know, we had three cows last uh, last year. We got three of the uh, day old calves. You know. And you got to get them and you got to bottle feed them. Three of them died and oh, two of no. them survived. Yeah. Yeah. But it's common. I found out it's common with calves. They're very susceptible to little diseases and things like that. So, um, but uh, in, in Washington, we were in Washington at the time and I had to put an easy up over the pen so the kids could bottle feed them and they weren't in the pouring rain. <laughs> so <laughs> it was... Not the funnest thing for them uh, while I was at work every day. The ones that died, you weren't feeding them through a BG funnel, were you? 
<laughs> yeah. Oh, did I use that for some 109? Oops. I'm not certain that that's bad for him, but I'm I'm guessing. Pretty sure it says on the can, don't drink it. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, man, we've been going for an hour, if you can believe that. But I want to ask you a couple more questions to kind of wrap this up, if that's okay. Sure. Um, the first one, what do people not know about you that you wish they did? Boy, that's a tough question. Hmm. Boy, I think, uh, man, I'm not really sure how to answer that. I think that sometimes people don't explain. I, I start off like my, uh, my, my initial point that I start with everybody is where I, I think we're going to be buddies. Yeah, yeah. And I think some people, uh, you know, don't expect that. And, uh, and maybe don't, uh, you know, maybe don't trust that that's the case, but that's, that's where I, I try to start with everybody. I mean, I always think of, a you know, I, and, and I probably, uh, am, you know, my, my level of professionalism might be a little different because of that, because, you know, I want to, I, I genuinely want to get to know people and see what they're like and understand who they are and, um, you know. And, and sometimes that takes, uh, that takes precedent for me over, you know, uh, like a, a real, you know, buttoned up business relationship with them, I guess. I don't know. I feel like I'm talking in circles on that, but that's, that's a tough question. No, I mean, it, it sounds like what you're saying, what I'm hearing you say is that you really want to connect on a deeper level with the people that you bring into your company not just on a business level. Yeah, I think uh, there was, I can't remember what I was listening to, but it was years ago. And a guy was talking about why the country at this point seems like everybody's at their throats all the time. And he, he described it, it might've been Sam Harris or Dan Carlin or something, but they were describing it as like, you know, we, in order to have like a, a society of people who get along is like you, one thing that you absolutely have to have is like the mutual assumption of goodwill. Mm, that That's a good point. You know, maybe like if, if someone says something that strikes you wrong or, you know, ruffles your feathers a little bit like that, like, you know, in order for us all to get along, it's kind of like a, a you know, a, cultural contract that we all assume that everybody is that they weren't purposely trying to get under your skin but they were trying to you know connect with you and and you know you might forgive some of those slips and stuff because of that you assume that they're actually a decent guy that just wants to get to know you and 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 be reasonable not everybody is but i think that that's the starting point that that would help solve a lot of the issues that we seem to all have with each other nowadays. Yeah, I I couldn't agree more. I mean, assuming the best rather than assuming the worst. Exactly. Right. Yeah. And, um, you know, you obviously have a lot more years uh, going on or a lot more years to go uh, in your career. But what is the legacy that you want to be remembered for? (laughs) 
think, um, you know, this, the, the role that I'm in now is like the first management role that I've been, I've been doing this for, we're, we're about to go on, we're going on six years now with Kansas BG. And, uh, one of the things that I think I've learned about management and what it really means to be a, a, a good manager is like, a, as a manager, your, your goal is really to create the conditions in which your employees can be like the absolute best version of themselves. You know, you equip them with the tools that they need. You give them the training and the, and the attention that they need. Um, you give them the, the, you know, the, the, the space to be creative. Uh, Mm -hmm. you're, you're gracious with them when, you know, they make mistakes and stuff. And in doing so, you really just, you, you try to create an environment where, a person who wants to do well can do as well as they possibly can with the tools that they have. And I feel like, um, for me, you know, i my dad's obviously he's the CEO and president of BG. And I don't think that that's really like the sort of track that I'm on. I don't think I'm really the guy to be steering the ship at the top, you know, but I think mm-hmm. what I, when I look at that and what, you know, what, what do I want to do? What do I want to be thought of and remembered of as it would be just that, like, you know, Casey was a good guy that really like helped me push myself to the top, you know? Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. That's awesome, dude. Well, Hey, it's been really good having you. Thank you for, uh, for, coming on the mammoth training podcast and thank you for the handoff. I really appreciate it, man. It's been great talking to you and uh, I hope everybody has gotten a lot of value out of this. Uh, where can people find you uh, after this podcast? Um, I don't have like a huge presence really anywhere except for Instagram. I guess I'm at Casey of Kansas on Instagram. Um, that's, you have LinkedIn, about the, right? I do. I haven't logged into it in a number of years. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, Instagram's for probably the audience. Find me. Okay, cool. Um, for the audience, too, I know that uh, you do have quite a few videos you've done for BG Products. And on YouTube, there's a BG Products channel uh, where Casey's got a lot of videos on there that are really good videos. I enjoyed your motorcycle video back in the day. Thank you. Yeah, that was a that was yeah. one of the better ones, I think. Yeah. Well, hey, thank you so much. Um, and uh, we'll talk to you soon, I'm sure. Yeah, thanks for having me. And man, I'm excited to see where you take Mammoth training. Right on. Well, thanks, Casey. Have a good day. You too.